This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hi there. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their children than ever before. I want to introduce you to ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because you can reduce the risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com and use the code RAZIB, R-A-Z-I-B, when signing up to skip the wait list. Hey, everybody. This is Razib Khan with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and we have a second-time uh, guest, and um, I am reaching out uh, for my guest's book. Uh, this is Eric Howell, uh, or Hole. Is it Hole or Howell? Howell, like Noel. Okay, that's what I, yeah, I think I think we went through this the last time, too. Um, Howell, like Noel, and uh, uh, your book is the, the World Behind the World, Consciousness, Free Will, and the Limits of Science. Um, and, uh, you know, you have a substack, the, the intrinsic perspective, which actually is, uh, a big deal in this book, uh, because you have the extrinsic perspective and the intrinsic perspective. And, uh, it's a, it's a pretty um, dense little book. It's well-written, um, I have to say, and there's a lot of things in here that, uh, people will recognize that are the type of people that I would say that I honestly listen to this podcast, like, you know, Julian Jane's, uh, bicameral mind, all sorts of neat, neat things in there. But, um, I want to talk really quickly about books and writing, um, because I told you it before I got on, um, you know, this is not an academic monograph. Uh, it's not turgidly written. Uh, it's very engagingly written, but also it's not, um, how do I say this? There are certain people who popularize where uh, the content is not very dense. Um, and I feel like you have a good balance there. And um, it's not your first book. Uh, can you just talk about writing a book like this? Like, do you have, I don't know, a natural talent? Or do you very, very consciously try to thread this sort of needle uh, between, oh, like infotainment, let's say at one end, Versus that, you know, dry 150 page monograph. Yeah, that's such a good question because because I do think that it, re- it it requires having not so much some very particular process, but rather having a particular target. And to me, the target is is always can I can I can I say something um, which is both interesting to people who are not myself. <laughs> And that is also original. Um, can I squeak in something that's 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 actually that's actually new? Um, and, and I think that that comes from the academic in me. You know, I got I, I got my PhD in neuroscience. Um, you know, I've, I've long been an academic, and, and when you're an academic, the coin of the realm is papers, right? And and each paper is supposed to be, um, you know, so, something something novel, something new. Um, and and I'm someone who who who, who really, I, th- I think almost innately took, took that to heart. And so I feel if I'm going to write a book, um, that it has to bring something new to the table, some sort of new perspective, a new idea, a new hypothesis. Um, 
and then the goal for me becomes how can I do something that's both, you know, very interesting to others and can have a wider reach, but I can also sneak sneak some stuff in there that could have been an academic monograph. Like, you, you know, you're, you're taking sort of something that could have been a university press book by itself and transforming it. And that's actually a big pet peeve of mine when I read a lot of popular science is that I, I, I often feel that after you've read five, 10, you know, popular science books in a particular subject, you really start to get a diminishing return effect. Um, you know, if you, if you, you'll feel this very strongly, you know, um, if, if, if you go out and you read, you know, Steven Pinker's How the Mind Works, uh, and then you read some Douglas Hofstadter, and then you read some, you know, Richard Dawkins or something, you begin to see that there's just this huge amount of overlap. Um, and so I sort of just fundamentally, you know, reject this notion that like popular writing can't have a lot of depth and that things that are depth can't be popular. I do think that there's a, an upper bound that I'm innately accepting when I go to write a project like this. I have to sort of set aside my writerly desire to be a number one New York Times bestseller because I know that that's absolutely never going to happen if it's like, you, you know, a deep sort of, you know, a, a exploration of consciousness or some of these other subjects. But that just having that target, I think, I think helps. I, I think that 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 just just having it viewable and having it not be that I'm going to create some buzzy, um, you know, new book about psychology or something, but it's actually going to be something that I feel I'm contributing. Um, and, and and yeah, and that, and that's a huge goal of mine. So I'm I'm actually extremely flattered and glad that you picked that up. Well, so you're also a novelist. Uh, you know, your novel Revelations, uh, the Revelations, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, you know was you know we we discussed a little bit about it i think in the previous visit and do you think writing fiction helps you in any way i i do think that every nonfiction writer should try their hand at fiction um at some point and i think that the best nonfiction writers are are frustrated fiction writers um it, it in in that you know to be to, to to be an actually successful fiction writer is almost it's almost a completely impossible thing. Um, there, there's more openings in 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 genre and and you know not not to exclude that or anything. But if you if you take sort of like genre stuff away, so you take away the really big fantasy authors and you take away the really big sci-fi authors, and you're just sort of left with you know people trying to write literature, the number of people who then make a living through that is so much smaller than the list of, of billionaires, right? And with nonfiction, that list is much, much larger. Um, and, and so, and I don't even think it's, it's necessarily about being, about being good. Um, that, 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 that like, we have some sort of super efficient market for like finding good writers. I, I don't think that that's true. Uh, but it is the case that if you are, if you are pretty good at writing fiction, uh, there's almost still no way you can make a living off of it, but you can take some of that uh, pizzazz, yeah, right? You can take some of that like love of language and then transform it into uh, into nonfiction. And I've always thought that some of the best nonfiction writers were were essentially frustrated fiction authors, or they have a book that like was good, but it didn't do you know amazingly. You can look at everyone from Joan Didion to you know plenty of other like great essayists to see that exact same effect. So um, you know, I hope that uh that 
that writing fiction sort of, sort of has, has had that effect on my work and that it makes me more interested in just in just the actual page, just the, like, like what's, what's on this actual page. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, I think what you're saying is correct. You obviously would know better than me, but you know, when I think about it in terms of literary fiction, uh, when I read about people who write literary fiction, a lot of the times, um, they are clubs and groups of aspiring authors reading their own fiction to each other. So it's like the people aspiring to write that fiction are a substantial number of the people who would consume it. Yes. Yes. And, and that's why even among the authors who, who make quite a bit of money, even, even among the people who are, you know, considered best selling literary fiction authors, most of them make their money teaching at MFA programs. They don't make their money from just selling their writing. It's actually extremely difficult to just make money selling writing. I mean, maybe like Jonathan Franzen can do it, right? Um, you know, a very, very small cadre of, of people. And there is this, um, you know, looking back at, at oneself. I, I, although, you know, as I say that, as I say that, though, I, I do think that there's nothing, you know, inherently wrong with pitching towards people who might be a little bit more, a um, little bit more deeply engaged and therefore have an interest, you know, of it in of it themselves. Like, I, I think there is something to being like a writer's writer. I think, you know, even with nonfiction, if I think about the audience for, you know, a lot of my work, it's people who are who are like engaged in ideas and maybe they they could have been a, a, a scientist, right? They still have sort of an, an outsized interest in science and they might think about picking it up. Although I don't think it's as it's as direct a connection as I'm literally, you know, selling the idea of being a writer to writers. I do think that that, um, you know, we live in the most educated time that's ever happened. A lot of people do have, um, you know, a, a pretty significant background in things. So um, I've always thought, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I, I've had this joke that I'm sort of um, when I write online, at least I'm like a substacker substacker, right? Like, a, the, the <laughs> you know, it's, it's very much that like other substack writers very, very much like, uh, you know, what I'm up to. And then, you know, to a, to a degree that expands out to a general audience. But, um, you know, oftentimes it's just, you know, I get I get a lot of my subscribers from, for example, yeah. recommendations from other Substacks. I think like forty to fifty percent of all my subscribers come from recommendations. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're, <laughs> you're capturing something there, bro. Uh, definitely. When I read your stuff, I'm just like, all right, <laughs> this is uh, this is it. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's uh, as mass market as some of the stuff like Matt Iglesias is, but uh, this is it, right? <laughs> yeah. There's that. <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with being, uh, you know, <laughs> substacker. Substacker is what I is what I tell myself. And I think that this is sort <laughs> yeah, of um, this book is sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, if 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 you're if you're interested in consciousness, um, you know, and you've ever thought, oh, maybe I could have gone into you know cognitive science or consciousness, then you know, this is more sort of the book. I I, I fear the people who have, you know, app, you know, you know, they, they'll immediately start with just having no idea what I'm talking about. And then I have to sort of, you know, yeah. work my way in uh, via concepts. But that's, that's actually being online has made that uh, online life and online culture has made it so much easier to connect with a group of people who are sort of have a sufficient background to be able to 
both do something popular and something in depth and, and have it reach, you know, at least, at least enough of an audience for it to be successful. Yeah. So let's, let's get to the book here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the book, but first, like I want to um, set the stage for the listener. Uh, so you're a neuroscientist. This is a book kind of about neuroscience to the biggest, you know, uh, general, you know, class, but neuroscience itself is divided into different fields uh, and I think we talked about this in the last podcast, but you know, um, you know, I'm a geneticist. I have some training in molecular biology, although I'm more of a population comp- compute guy. But a lot of the neuroscience that, um, you know, people that I know that work in neuroscience, many of them, it's almost like they're—I don't want to say biochemists or structural biologists, but they're looking at um, how a neuron or a dendrite functions. Uh, action potentials, electrophysiology, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, very, very um, reductionistic, very, very mechanistic. Okay, so that's one end of neuroscience. Uh, you talked about cognitive neuroscience. There's also cognitive science, which is uh, kind of a mishmash of cognitive neuroscience, psychology, philosophy. You know, okay, you think about how you think, right? Um, so I get that. And then you have cognitive neuroscience, which I think that's your interest. And that's, I mean, really... I think cognitive neuroscience is what people are really, really interested in. There's not too many. I mean, you know, popular neuroscience books tend to be biased towards cognitive neuroscience. Okay, so um, you know, and how you think and consciousness—that's um, that's a big deal. Can you situate, um, you know, elucidate on that at all in terms of like what the listener would get out of this book? Uh, you know, not much chemistry, but you know, more stuff related to consciousness and there's a lot of philosophy in there too and history. Yes. And, and, and I think that in some ways the strangeness of neuroscience is an effect of its, of its history. If you look at the very early psychologists, you know, from William James to, to Wilhelm Wundt, you know, these people who are, um, you know, eventually sort of the, the, the godfathers of psychology. And then, you know, in a sense, uh, neuroscience, particularly cognitive neuroscience is just, is just, you know, trying to map psychology into the brain um if you look at these early scientists who who didn't see much of a distinction um you know there was no clear like only neuroscience and only psychology back then um they they, they're all very interested in one major question which is essentially that how does the brain generate a stream of consciousness and by stream of consciousness um i think people should should know I'm, i'm i'm not really referring to something very mysterious. I'm referring to something that we all have direct access to. It's the stream of thoughts, experiences, and sensations that begins when you wake up in the morning from a dreamless sleep, and that, you know, ends when you go back into a dreamless sleep, or that vanishes under anesthesia. And neuroscience went through this odd period where, um, due to the sort of the rise of scientific pragmatism, pragmatism, and so on, uh, and, and behaviorism, it became very difficult to talk about consciousness. I mean, it became essentially academically unacceptable to talk about consciousness. And that's because consciousness, despite being so familiar to us in, in, um, and in some cases, the thing we're most familiar with, it also has this very odd property, which is that it seems to concern subjective feelings and states. And so therefore locating it within the realm of uh, science, which is traditionally focused on the extrinsic, which is sort of the term I use in my book to refer to mechanistic descriptions. Um, it has this quality that seems very difficult to relate to. We don't quite know how to relate those two things. If you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you know where to subscribe. 